Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Dirk Maher now. He is, as I said, head of FX strategy at HSBC. Give us the backdrop here to this BOE decision. Uh, first of all, again, the BOE uh, leaving that key interest rate unchanged here. We've seen uh, some strengthening in sterling here over the last uh, few weeks. Yeah, we have. And uh, it, in part, I guess it has been an echo of that, that shift in the BOE. You know, post-Brexit vote, it was meant to be you know, run for the hills. Um, and then we suddenly saw the data coming through better than expected. And and the language changed at the last couple of meetings. So, as you say, we arrived at today's meeting expecting absolutely what we got, which is to say nothing at all. I'm not, to be honest, I'm not really sure it matters that much for sterling generally what the Bank of England is doing. Sterling is a political currency. It's, it's not an interest rate story. It's not the Fed and the dollar and these kind of bits and pieces. The, the, sterling is a political story. I think it completely disregards today. Uh, the, the market cares more about what, uh, what Mr. Hammond has to say, perhaps, uh, about uh, fiscal policy? Uh, potentially, though, you know, we had the autumn statement and he, he, I guess he, he kind of put a bit of a wet blanket on the idea that, you know, this, this new prime ministership would deliver a, a fiscal easing. He, all he really said is we're not going to tighten quite so aggressively. So, I mean, that could have been a very sterling positive angle, as we're seeing in the US. You know, the idea of a fiscal surge is very currency positive. But in the UK, they just don't have the money to do it. Maybe the US doesn't, but they're going to do it anyway. But in the UK, they've decided they don't have enough money to do it. So, you know, fiscal policy pretty neutral over there. Let's talk a bit about what we saw yesterday from, from the Federal Reserve going into the meeting. I think you thought there'd be uh, indications on the dot plot of two rate rises uh, in uh, 2017, as many uh, economists did. How surprised were you by the, the change to the dots? Yeah, I, genuinely surprised. Yeah. Um, you know, it's uh, what's interesting today, you started by saying you know, the U.S. raised rates yesterday. I kind of think, oh, did they? Because uh, you know, it was like, well, that wasn't what we were talking about yesterday. We were talking about the dots all day. Um, so, yeah, that was, that was a surprise. And look, they, when you do a revision like that, you know the market impact <clears> is going to happen. Uh, and that's what they play to. It's triangulation Thursday. We're going to do that here uh, in a moment. David, time for a pro conversation. There you go. What the pros do, folks, when something moves is they try to triangulate. It's no different than, you know, you're in Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts and you're out in the field with a compass and you go, why am I doing this? You know, John Tucker, where you're... We had did GPS. You do, we, no, this is before GPS. Seeking to all that. You know, the, you know, I was out in the bow of the, the Nina or the Pinta, the Santa, yeah. one of those. So, Darmeyer, here's what I did when we get Carney's move. I look at sterling, sterling dollar. I look at euro dollar, and I look at euro sterling, and they're not correlated. They scream weak euro. Why am I going to get a 103 print on euro dollar? off of what Carney says. You're getting the 103 on euro dollar off the fact that we've just broken that support level. I really think this is a, a stop loss story 
rather than a reaction. Trades getting point. covered and all that. Yeah, yeah, all the usual. I mean, to be honest, I used to think this is like when you go to your doctor and he hasn't a clue what's wrong, so he says it's stress-related. When a strategist says it's positioning-related, it's okay. pretty much the equivalent. Where's the argue. stress going to be within those three currency pairs? How does our audience monitor, or heaven forbid, David, even speculate on what's going to happen between sterling, euro-dollar, and uh, euro-sterling? I think that price action we've seen this morning on euro-dollar, that will be the dominant element of that triangle. Um, so what it points to is, for now, people are going to be exploring the downside on euro-dollar. They're going to be looking for some downside, less so yeah. on euro-sterling. I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. Is that, that, that triangle, normally it's kind of an, a nice relationship, and sterling's yeah. kind of the middle guy Cocktail on euro-dollar. conversation. Yeah, exactly. But now, at that break of, of the, the March 2015 low, it opens up an entirely new conversation on euro-dollar. David Gura, 104.13, intraday low, weakness, 104.05. On euro dollar. I'm getting some headlines now about the economic outlook that accompanied that statement from the Bank of England. Near-term global outlook improved. Risks uh, have elevated here. This this uh, remains the story, will be the story here going into 2017. Yeah, I mean, risks elevated. I, I love it when a central bank tells us uncertainty is high. I mean, <laughs> uncertainty is always high. Isn't it? When have you ever had a certain outlook? So, But th- this is what they're coping with. But what's interesting is they're putting a positive spin on the global mm-hmm. outlook. Whereas what I would argue is we don't know what the global outlook is. We don't know what Trump's going to give us. We don't know what the China response might be to a protectionist angle. We'd, there's a lot of moving parts out there. And so I still think the Bank of England, if any, although they won't say it, maybe overtly, they're still kind of thinking we might need to ease again in 2017. I still think that's the direction of travel there. A line from your most recent note, you said that the Fed is a cyclical driver here uh, and the US dollar is more preoccupied with political drivers for now. Explain that a little bit. Yeah, so if you think in terms of traditionally how you approach the dollar, you just always look to the Fed, data-dependent Fed. So that was all about the economic cycle. The U.S. election changed the dollar into a political beast because suddenly we became fixated on the politics of the U.S. And I think yesterday's move by the Fed really reflected an acknowledgement that, that the U.S. economic outlook is, if not partly, but I would say quite dominantly, a political story now. And they have to take account of that in their forecasting. And they've done it to an extent in the dots, not so much in GDP. They hardly revise GDP. It doesn't doesn't suggest they're factoring in a big fiscal stimulus. Imagine when they, if we do get a fiscal stimulus, they have to revise their GDP forecast again. They have to revise their dots again. You know, So we're only, they're only beginning that process. But the financial markets, as ever, ahead of the central bank, anticipating that process. And that's why we've had a strong dollar. But that doesn't make the dollar an outlier, right? When you look at currency pairs, it seems like politics is what's driving most. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. I mean, and we, I guess we got used to it in emerging markets yeah. for a long time. We got used to it in sterling post the Brexit vote. But now okay. the dollar's coming around. Give us some levels of where, not that we unravel or we find instability, but in the HSBC grind every day, mm-hmm. what's the trip point on dollar yen? What's the trip point on euro? What's the trip point on Malaysian ringgit? Something obscure like, I mean, yeah. even Mexican peso weekends out here. Yeah, I think um, on dollar yen, it doesn't feel quite so scary, does it? Because we've, we've been up, let's but say, around the 125s and this kind of number before. So we've got... So you're comfortable going space. to a 121, 122 week yen? I think it's it's conceivable without it being destabilizing, which I think is your your, your question. But I for th- Secretary Treasury Mnuchin, who's going to have a strong dollar policy, yeah. where's the trip point on this house of cards? I, I think the trip point comes for the Fed, not for the Treasury. Um, you know, the, we've seen, let's say, ballpark a 10% move is a moving thing. But let's say ballpark 10 10- move. On the Fed's reckoning, that's somewhere between 60, 70, 80 basis points of tightening. So I think the, the pain point is already coming through. I like that. Already yeah. coming through. 
But euro dollar, obviously, people are going to talk about parity as being the the weird level that we need to be cognizant of. I don't think we'll get there, to be honest, even with the momentum this morning. But that's yeah. going to be the conversation. I mean, David Gura, very quickly here. I, I don't want to monopolize, but we got off the election. <clears throat> worst case, this is worst case, folks. Uh, humor me. Six percent move in the Bloomberg dollar index, which is good math. But it's a six percent move. It's not a ten percent right. move yet. We haven't talked about oil yet this morning. I'm seeing a, a Brent here at fifty four twenty eight a barrel. That upward momentum still there. To what extent is that driving currencies right now? Energy. It's it's been a big story uh, for ruble, for example, yeah. Canadian dollar. I mean, you have to pick and choose. I mean, uh, post U.S. election, as of yesterday at least, before the Fed, the ruble was the best performing currency in the world, and that's oil. Um, or maybe it's a little bit of Trump-like <laughs> Putin. <laughs> Let's not go there. In there um, well, yeah. You know, but Canadian dollar was the third best. Yeah. Um, so it's it's definitely a big part of the story. Of course, we've had the good news now. They're going to cut production. Now you have to see, do they match what they've said they're going to do with what they actually do? You know, and so we'll have to have to follow that. But uh, certainly good news for now and good news for those currencies. There you go. Um, I've been talking about a theme of overcome by events. And I'm bringing this up with great respect for the president-elect Because in a time of certitude and a methodology of certitude, sometime parachuting in, we are overcome by events. Durham Mayor, in London, outside the Sofitel Hotel is that wonderful statue of a worthy of the Crimean War, where they were overcome by events. What's the event you're watching now within the financial system? I mean, we can go, oh, Italian banks, or we can go President-elect Trump. Baloney, what's the thing that you want to observe in the 2017 and monitor? I, well, I, I wouldn't say baloney because I do actually think the thing we're going to have to work out is Trump. I mean, we're still, still struggling with that. Constantly, the market at the moment is assuming we get all the nice bits, we don't get any of the ugly bits. And I think that's a huge leap of faith that's been taken. Um, so, you know, we, look, we should have a little bit more clarity end of Q1. Um, but, you know, I really hate forecasting. Currency forecasters don't like forecasting generally. Mm. Uh, when it's just economics, you've got to worry about it. But when you've got to try and work out what's going on in politics, it becomes a whole lot messier. And that's, but that's happening across the board now in currency. So, baloney or not, I, I think we do come back to just trying to figure Trump out and see what we're going to get in terms of actual policy, not promises. And bearing that in mind, I imagine you're watching the renminbi very closely. Yeah, I mean, look, this strong dollar yeah, complicates things. You know, it does complicate things for the Chinese authorities. They, I think they would prefer that the dollar were not this strong. Uh, we saw overnight, you know, the fixing, pushing higher again on dollar RMB. Um, and you're coming to January, and January is a, s- a seasonal part of the year where you have the biggest pressure on, on the balance of payments in China. There's um, you know, Chinese demand for foreign currency tends to be peak around this time, um, and, the, and the current account, the trade side, tends to deteriorate. So this is... Awkward timing, and you just raise that flag. Do we do we start next year as we started this one? Worried about worried about currencies and worried about EM currencies. What does the, the U.S. What do U.S. policymakers want to see the the Chinese currency doing at this point, in terms of weakness? If if they're sensible, yeah. they I think they should suggest that they don't see it do very much, uh, because the renminbi is is a vital anchor in terms of a stable renminbi is a vital anchor in terms of just global financial markets. If, if that currency de-anchors, then, then you've got a, a whole other whirlwind of issues to, to cope with. So if they're sensible, I think they, they'd prefer to see it stable. I think, obviously, if, if you're going to call China a currency manipulator or they're going down that path of trade, you know, uh, wars, etc., then you want to see your renminbi strengthened. But, I mean, at the end of the day, the dollar is the one that's strengthening. Renminbi is not doing very much. So that's, that's the conundrum for them, I guess, at the moment. 
Ahead of the meeting yesterday, the Fed meeting yesterday, we, we speculated uh, on the degree to which Janet Yellen would comment on the possibility of a, a big fiscal stimulus of tax reform. What did you make of what she did say yesterday? She wasn't completely uh, silent on, on the matter. She did uh, address the fact that some members of the committee were concerned about it. What does that tell you about the, the thinking of policymakers at the Federal Reserve right now? Yeah, I, I, I honestly thought that was interesting um, because they have or had at least the option at the Fed to say we're going to be reactive in the context of fiscal policy. We don't know what we're going to get, so let's see what we get and then we can adjust. We're not in a rush to hike anyway, so we can afford to be patient. But as you say, what she introduced yesterday was just this concept that we have to anticipate you know, what the impact might be of politics. You know, The currency market, the bond market has said, look, politics is the driver here. Um, and now the Fed yesterday is just taking the first few steps down that road. So it was a significant departure and one they didn't need to do, so they've chosen to do it. So I think that, as I say, significant. What are the, the, the lessons you've learned here uh, in the wake of what we've seen uh, with the U.S. election, obviously the, the Brexit vote as well, and then the, the Italian referendum, we saw so little market reaction, at least comparatively. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What does that tell you as we head to the next elections in France and the Netherlands uh, across Europe? Well, one takeaway is the, the euro is just so bored with European politics. You know, it's um, we, we've just had so much stuff to digest. I think that the, the sensitivity, in fact, I think we're just completely desensitized to political turmoil. Um, and so we had this kind mm -hmm. of sell the rumor, buy the fact in Euro. And, and I think we're going to get to the Dutch elections in March. We're going to get to the French election. We're going to get to the German elections. And we'll talk about it and we'll spend endless hours negotiating it. But I suspect at the end of the day, Euro is not breaking up. The political discount, however big it is yeah. that's in the currency, it's going to disappear. It'll be but gone by is, the end of next year. Critically, with a 104.25 breaking down a euro down to a 2003 weakness, is it a different debate at a 0.95 euro? I would suggest it is. I yeah. mean, the dialogue changes. Yeah, it does. And, you know, the if we were worrying about European political risk, when you had a little bit of the breathing space above parity, then you could kind of say, okay, fine, we can, we can see a few big figures lower and it doesn't really matter. But if political risk in Europe is the thing that drives us to parity or drags us to parity, then it becomes much more of an issue, just, just from a market psychology perspective. Now, congratulations to our mayor on uh, making all of us lean forward with a 110 call <laughs> on Sterling out in the distance. Uh, but nevertheless, he maintains that even with what we've seen. a funny quirk of this incoming administration that so much of a spectacle is rested on Trump Tower just a few blocks from here and there's a camera trained on the elevators therein and last week we saw one Admiral James Stavridis at Trump Tower meeting with the president-elect. He is now the dean of the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University, reportedly was in the running to become a secretary of state. And it's great to have you on the show uh, as always, Admiral Stavridis. Great to be with you guys. How's it going today? Great. Give us a sense here, uh, I'll let you, let you decide what you want to share from that meeting. But I imagine that one of the things you guys discussed, you and the president-elect, is what he uh, is looking for in a secretary of state. What are the parameters he's looking for? Who does he want to have in that job? What kind of person? I think he's looking for someone with a global perspective who has experience on a world stage, uh, someone who has a broad circle of friends and colleagues uh, in the world, and someone with whom he has uh, strong personal chemistry. When, when you look at Rex Tillerson, the, the former, now former ExxonMobil executive whom he's picked for that job, give us a sense of how he meets those, those uh, bars. Uh, I don't know if you've met him before, but what do you make of the pick? 
I have met him, and I think he meets those bars uh, quite well. He has uh, an enormous global set of connections. He's run a huge, complex organization. He's someone that is instantly likable. Uh, there's very little to criticize. The only thing that I think is out there, and it's a legitimate concern given the way the wind is blowing at the moment, is his evidently extraordinarily close relationship mm -hmm. with Vladimir Putin. I think that's going to be a subject of considerable scrutiny on the Hill. I'll probably watch football or soccer on Sky TV as well. <laughs> David Gura, very quickly, 20th Century Fox formalizes uh, their purchase of Sky TV, the rest of Sky TV. Uh, the value is $11.7 That's a calculation, but it gets you out to a $12 billion sterling transaction. Uh, that gets me up to, uh, I don't know what that is. I'm, I'm doing the math quickly here. <laughs> I'm going to say it's a $14 billion transaction. But as you said, Rupert Murdoch, you're owner of uh, about 39% <clears throat> of that, that company already, something that he's, uh, <clears throat> that he's wanted to, uh, to acquire. Admiral Stravides, you mentioned that Russia connection, and we, we look forward to, to these hearings, to, to hearing more about that. What does it tell you, and, and what did your meeting with Donald Trump tell you about the degree to which Russia, foreign policy toward and involving Russia, is going to be a priority for this administration? Well, I think it's got to be a priority for a couple of reasons. First of all, we have three enormous confrontations in progress with Russia. One is uh, Putin's support for Vladimir, a correction, his support for Assad in Syria, uh, someone who's just butchering the city of Aleppo, only the most recent of his war crimes. Secondly, the annexation of Crimea. And thirdly, and most obviously, the cyber hack into the U.S. electoral process. So Russia really, <clears throat> de facto, is at the top of the agenda as we go into this new administration. Admiral, I've, I've read a couple articles on the uh, uproar over the number of generals within the new cabinet. We need a Stravitas dissertation now. Is there a difference between a Marine general and an Army general or a Navy admiral, or are they all the same rank, et cetera? Um, all the ones we're talking about are four-star admirals or generals. Uh, the difference between them is in the uh, specialty within the armed forces. So the mm -hmm. Army four-star general commands soldiers on battlefields, on land. The Marine is kind of amphibious. He can be out at sea with his Marines, or he can take his Marines ashore, also four-star officer. A Navy Admiral is in command of naval at-sea forces, aircraft carriers, mm -hmm. cruisers, and can also command that amphibious force as it closes on the beach. Are they going to bring to Mr. Trump a humility about certitude? He is a guy who's certain of what he's doing. Are they going to bring the humility of their military experience? I think they will, Tom. What they will bring is an appreciation of the fog of war, which can yeah. be extended to the fog of foreign relations. It, it's hard. This is complicated stuff. And to think you're going to just cut through it like a knife right. through butter is a mistake. Moments ago, Richard Greenfield, one of the class acts, of security analysts, uh, analysis at BTIG. On Viacom, we mentioned Sky TV, uh, David, why I bring this up. Viacom may never be great again, reducing price target, but expectations are simply too low. This is classic Rich Greenfield. Our upgrade of Viacom to buy on June 16th was undoubtedly a mistake as it was driven by our conviction that Viacom and CBS would merge. So they adjust, but they do maintain their buy rating just because it's been beat to death. 
There's not enough of that. No. There you go. A guy like Greenfield is really just out front. Dennis Garman does the same thing. He talks about the disasters as much as the successes. We'd expect that from Admiral Stravitas as well. Joining us, James Stravitas of Fletcher School, Tufts University. Um, Admiral, I'm sure there's a point as a young Navy type, a midshipman, I don't know what the right phrase is, where there's somebody who's certain that they're certain that they're certain, and they're sat down by a chief petty officer who says, young lad, out of Annapolis? No. This, the certitude emanating from the Trump transition team is remarkable. Everybody's certain that they're certain. How do you deal with that? How, how within government are we going to deal with the, the ebbing away from certitude toward a more, towards a more measured and balanced approach? Well, first of all, uh, the world will accomplish that in its yep. own way. Overcome. There'll be enormous vectors that push in on uh, people's ideas of what exactly ought to happen, and that'll come like a freight train at this administration on January 20th, starting with North Korea, cyber, Russia, a number of other things in the foreign policy sphere alone. Secondly, Tom, you bring in people who can be that chief petty officer, Tom Keene, you know, someone who's been around, who has experience, and you listen to him. And so I am encouraged when I see picks like uh, General Jim Mattis, General John Kelly, both of whom I know extremely well and who, who will be that, uh, that Dutch uncle uh, to whoever. They will back down to nobody, and they, seek, uh, they neither have fear nor do they seek favor. Within this is a military phrase, overcome by events. Uh, is an, and you're the pro. We're the amateurs. We read our military history. There's OBE. If you were sitting with the president-elect right now, what is the OBE you would lecture him on? I'd probably start with uh, Syria, which has been overcome by tragic events. And at this point, uh, we, we're not going to be able to put Humpty Dumpty back together again in Syria. We're going to have to, I think, partition Syria. And that means probably cutting a deal with the Russians, uh, taking ISIS out. I think that's firmly what has to occur. That'll give a base to a more moderate Syria out in the west and the north. But the idea that we're going to be able to put Syria back together as a coherent state, that's overcome by events. Admiral Servetus, I hear your praise for General Mattis and General Kelly, and I think back to a conversation we had, I think before the, uh, mm. b- before those picks were named, certainly, in which you, you expressed some concern here about changing the, uh, the law that says that somebody has to be out of a uniform for seven years before taking mm-hmm. a position like the ones they, they are, in fact, <clears> taking. <throat> Have you come around to the idea? What, what, uh, what concern remains uh, about doing what Donald Trump here has proposed doing? I still have that concern in the broad scheme of things. In other words, I don't think uh, for the Department of Defense, not for the other cabinet jobs, but for the Department of Defense, it's generally not a good idea to put a recently retired military in there because you dilute the idea of civilian control of the military. However, I think General Jim Mattis is an exception to that rule. A, because he is who he is. He's very firm. He's very smart. He's very, uh, he will stand in the wind that blows in that job, and I think there'll be a lot of wind blowing. And then secondly, uh, because I think President Trump needs somebody like him, uh, an experienced hand, uh, as Tom was saying, kind of that chief petty officer mm-hmm. who can say, hey, we really got to do it this way, Mr. President. Uh, for those two reasons, I support Jim Mattis as a one-time exception. Yeah. In the blur, Admiral, I saw today some think tank, et cetera, taking aerial shots of coral atolls. Is that the right word? In the South China Sea and gaming that there's military. And I'm sorry, Admiral, it had the blush 
of Cuba of 50 years ago <laughs> to it. How do we approach our intelligence within the South China Sea, and how does the good Navy show the flag in a constructive way? Well, first, in terms of intelligence, Tom, as, as you're well aware, a great deal is now collected from satellites, and we can position those. So we can position a satellite in a geosynchronous orbit, which means it just parks over one point on the Earth. Uh, secondly, we can use unmanned vehicles, um, air air unmanned vehicles and undersea unmanned vehicles. Uh, those can be very surreptitious and they can operate from uh, the decks of our ships. And that's really the third thing we can do is move our ships through that region, collecting electronic intelligence. So we have a great deal of capability. We need to show the flag because here's the key point, Tom, these are international waters. This is the high seas. And we cannot cede that to China and simply let them treat the South China Sea as though it were their own personal lake. It is not. I think of all the times we've spoken with you and you've cautioned about the risks of, of cybersecurity going forward here, mm. the risks of big hacks. And yeah. uh, we certainly <laughs> uh, read the report in The New York Times a couple of days ago detailing how the DNC yeah. was, was hacked uh, by Russia, according to, to The New York Times and the documents that they've seen there. I yeah. wonder if from your conversations with the president, like you think he's taking that seriously enough. He, he, he doesn't seem to be backing uh, the move by some lawmakers to investigate this fully. And what does that say to you about his willingness to see this as the grave threat that it is? I think these are two separate uh, strands of a, of a combination that comes together. So on cybersecurity, I think he is taking it very seriously, broadly speaking, not attaching a national label to it, but looking at China, North Korea, Iran, Russia, uh, hackers, cybercrime, that basket, I think he's taking very seriously. Um, I think he's making a mistake to walk away from an investigation of the Russian piece of this because it's so, so much a dagger pointed at the heart of American democracy. And uh, I think ultimately there will be uh, uh, several investigations, certainly a congressional one. Um, and I think the executive branch would do well to participate in that and follow it uh, wherever the facts lead us. I should, uh, I mean, I, 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 uh, it, it was an astonishing story, uh, I, I thought, and, and uh, like you, I, 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 I think that Congress is going to continue to take it more and more seriously here. Uh, going forward here, what, what's your advice to Rex Tillerson, somebody who is not accustomed to dealing with government in the way that he will be dealing, accustomed to all the bureaucracy he's going to have to navigate here? Uh, what's a piece of advice you'd give him as he, as he you know, potentially enters that? Well, let, let's remember uh, the uh, Exxon is a big bureaucracy, and he's navigated it quite successfully. So I suspect he'll, he'll easily adapt himself to the culture of the State Department. But my advice to him would be to get the most professional, experienced, career diplomat he possibly can, someone who's been an ambassador at least three times, and make him the deputy. Someone like uh, Bill Burns, Ambassador Bill Burns, Ambassador Nick Burns. Uh, they're a group of real old hands at the uh, State Department, because what he will need advice on is how to use this new bureaucracy that he's inherited um, effectively around the world. He'll need someone from the inside to do that. You didn't mention John Bolton there. Uh, John Bolton, I think, has experience, but he hasn't been a, uh, a three-time career Foreign Service kind of person. Uh, but he has yeah. been an ambassador, and that's a plus. Are you teaching this semester? Or are you taking the uh, Navy sabbatical? <laughs> <laughs> Tom, I always teach, and uh, I try to particularly focus in on leadership teaching. Up What's here. your number I, one I, message here, given what we're witnessing in New York? I think that uh, 
great leaders in the 21st century have to do three things. They have to be innovators. That's what distinguishes a, a leader from a follower, innovation. Secondly, they have to be great communicators and understand how to use all the elements of communication. And number three, uh, and most importantly, they have to be collaborators. They have to build teams. They have to work with allies and partners. It's that third piece that I'm uh, particularly hoping we'll see Good. the administration seize on. Admiral, have a huge holiday season. <laughs> Mr. Stavidis of Tufts University has given us terrific perspective. Maybe we'll see him outside the Trump Tower, David Garner. Go. You know, remote. Remote. <laughs> you can go over there and remote with the Stavidis camp. The Stavidis camp. I like that. Very good. <laughs> Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. We spoke with Peter Hooper of Deutsche Bank, two big figures on Euro ago. That's how much things have moved in X number of days. So we need a readjustment. Alan Ruskin joins us from Mr. Hooper's shop over at Deutsche Bank. Alan, uh, Dr. Hooper brought up, and he's in the economic area, macroeconomics, hugely esteemed, widely considered on many short lists for Fed uh, service, if you will. Alan Ruskin, he brought up Dominique Constant, who's worried about financial instability. And the problem is both Peter Hooper and Dominique Constant turn to you and they go, okay, Alan, now what in foreign exchange? Help us this morning with this, Alan Ruskin. I mean, Euro 105, we get a 103 print. I mean, we're back on the parity watch, aren't we? We're definitely in the parity watch, uh, Tom. Uh, I think the... In important thing to consider when you look at the euro dollar and also the dollar index in general in a broader sense is that we are trading a very wide range for a while mm -hmm. and uh, you know we're seeing 105 to 115 as the euro dollar range uh, over pretty much 18 months or so and so you know breaking that level is a big deal but uh, it's not all that strong in relation to where we were 18 months ago. I, I'll go with that. And a lot of people have said that. The danger here is, you know, and you can only learn this, folks, by enjoying losing money, as only Alan Ruskin and I have done, is you begin to extrapolate and that gets you into trouble. Are you extrapolating this morning? Well, I think uh, what you're seeing is a pretty strong trending market. So if you mean by uh, extrapolation trending, then uh, yes, I would be uh, you know, thinking that we could go quite a bit further. Typically, when you have a ranges of, say, for example, you're $1.105 to 115 when you break that, if that uh, range is particularly well established, mm. you'll move back down by another, say, 10 big figures, right. really. So uh, that brings into wow. focus 95 cents. And that's our year-end forecast for 2017, okay. which is coming up rather quickly now. Okay, we made some news this morning. That's good. Very quick, I know David wants to jump in. Is this a real rate U.S. versus them analysis, or do capital flows kick in to get you to weaker euro 0.95? 
Well, look, you've got a big divergence story, you know, uh, divergence with a capital D occurring. If you look at U.S. interest rates in relation to pretty much uh, all the G10, you're spiraling out in, on a nominal basis, um, to a real, uh, real basis as well, but particularly on a nominal interest rate uh, spread basis to, um, if not multi-year highs, then multi-decade highs. So you've got a huge move on the go here from a rate spread standpoint that's driving this. When you look at the, this move in the euro, what, can you attribute it to the Fed principally? In other words, what, what accounts for the breakout that we've seen? Yeah, I think it's primarily the Fed, but I think you have to also consider that the euro side is not terribly attractive either. So, you know, the market's looking at the on, on the euro side saying, okay, so uh, we maybe got some sort of ECB elongated taper, but we're not going to hear from them for a long time now that we've got December's ECB meeting out the way. And in the meantime, you've probably got, you know, four major elections, at least three major elections coming up in Europe with all the political uncertainties that that entails. So, you know, nothing terribly constructive on the euro side as well. How much are economic fundamentals reflected in what we're seeing uh, right now? I think of industrial production out yesterday in the US and and in Europe uh, as well. Are we seeing that reflected in uh, the price of euro right now? Well, I think uh, we're still trading really the promise of Donald Trump as much as the realities in terms of the economic data. I mean, the economic data that you're seeing in terms of acceleration, a lot of that is really sentiment data. You've seen the fully fed uh, today for example, the six-month outlook is extremely constructive. Um, you know, that's that's a sentiment indicator. The consumer confidence data, that's that's sentiment numbers, really. But uh, in general, probably before the uh, Trump phenomena, you were seeing some acceleration from a low point uh, in growth uh, around the middle of this year and, you know, into the third quarter. You're seeing some acceleration, I think, related to the idea that financial conditions, which had tightened very early in the year, uh, were no longer uh, tightening and therefore we're being more helpful for the U.S. economy. Help us with Sterling when we look at that. Is, is Brexit, is the whole Brexit process now fully priced in, do you think? No, I don't think so. I think, uh, you know, what we've seen is the UK economy has been pretty resilient. If the UK economy does see some, you know, meaningful downturn in the first half of uh, next year, then, um, you know, all bets are off again. I th- you know, again, I think sterling will weaken. I think what's interesting on the sterling side is it's not just a Brexit story. If you actually look again at the interest rate spread side, um, I think people don't realize, but uh, Fed funds not traded above the UK base rates by more than 100 basis points for uh, the better part of 30 plus years. So we are moving into terrain on a rate spread basis that we haven't seen on a really a multi-decade basis. When you look ahead to, to 2017, is, is the focus here on the euro principally, are you, are you looking at renminbi? Yeah, what, what, are the, what are the, what are the yeah. currency pairings that you're most uh, yeah. most closely watching here as we headed to 2017? Well, you know, I, I'm, I'm looking at pretty much everything, sure. really. Right now, I think we're focusing, obviously, on the euro and the yen. They have been the principal vehicles that uh, people have been expressing their long dollar view on. Um, but I think uh, from a risk perspective, we're clearly looking at uh, dollar China in particular and seeing how that trades okay. and whether it becomes disruptive. But then I noticed Philippine peso today printing 50, which is sort of like now 10,000 folks for the Philippine people. I don't mean that in a snarky way. It's like a huge, huge deal. Can our listeners monitor what we're doing by looking at the EM dynamics, or should we really just focus on 
euro and yen? I definitely look at the EM dynamics. And EM dynamics are quite complex because, you know, you've got yeah. the stronger dollar story in general. You've got Fed tightening. You've got U.S. Uh, long-term interest rates backing up. None of that's very good for EM. EM's normally high beta, so it normally trades badly in that environment. But against that, you have the prospect of uh, U.S. Uh, fiscal easing. You have the possibilities of stronger U.S. growth. You have got some acceleration in global growth. So it's actually, well, I think, providing some protection from the EM side. I come back and talk about this, Alan, but very, very simply here, is this a weekend where you blow up your Excel spreadsheet that you do? Is this sort of like a tipping point into the new year? Not quite, Tom. I think, <laughs> uh, no, I think, you know, we to some extent one could see some of this happening. It's come a little bit quicker than yeah. uh, anticipated. So, you know, uh, maybe we're bringing forward events, I think, rather than yeah. sort of, you know, really blowing up the okay, spreadsheet. I like that idea. Uh, we end strong with Alan Ruskin at Deutsche Bank with decades of experience with synthesizing foreign exchange dynamics into any and all else that's going on. Uh, right now, to the, the dynamic that we're seeing, you just said we're pulling forward movements anticipated six months a year, even 18 months out. Is that what the Fed is doing? Is it trying to get out front and pull forward the discussion? I don't think so. I think uh, if you judge what uh, Janet Yellen was saying, I think she was being very cautious and suggesting that uh, the shift in the dots, for example, was uh, tiny. But uh, unfortunately, these pesky little dots, really, even small movements really mean quite a lot. So, um, you know, I think it's the market that's uh, jumping ahead and taking, uh, you know, small tidbits from the Fed and, and, and really running with it. When you look at uh, the, the the potential for protectionism, more protectionism here in, in the U.S., what are the currency pairs that that's going to affect the most? In other words, if if we see uh, stronger, shall we call it, trade policy, uh, if we see new tariffs, uh, what's that going to affect? Well, I think uh, you're going to see a different uh, impact on developed market currencies and G4 currencies in particular relative to the emerging markets world and commodity currencies. Uh, in the initial instance, I think if the market really smells that protectionism is real, then I think we're going to see a reshuffling in terms of Fed expectations, which is actually you know going to be negative for the dollar versus uh, the G4 currencies. But uh, protectionism and uh, you know its impact on trade and commodity prices etc. will be seen as uh, negative for the emerging market currencies as well. So I think you're going to get this dichotomy really between uh, you know, what's going on uh, where the G4 currencies, for example, the euro and particularly yen will actually do fine in that environment. Uh, but uh, um, you're going to see the EM currencies suffer. How cognizant do you think the, the Fed is of that happening? I was struck yesterday the degree to which Janet Yellen mentioned the fact that some of her uh, colleagues were aware of the fact that there is this ongoing conversation about uh, new economic stimulus or tax reform. But uh, the, the, the argument about protectionism, about what that could mean for the economy, uh, didn't seem to come up. Yeah, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, it's a discussion that no one really wants to vocalize on too much. Um, again, it's being very preemptive. You know, I was saying earlier that uh, the market's trading the promise of fiscal stimulus. To yeah. some extent, you know, this is also conjecture in terms of where trade policy goes. And I think there's a perception that ultimately, you know, we will have a fairly rational yeah. outcome to this and that uh, um, somewhat free trade will still prevail. It's Thursday. Uh, Monday seems ages ago, Alan. <laughs> on Monday, I framed a Deutsche Bank optimism on the economy. Your colleague, Peter Hooper, adamant that we see a better reflation and higher yields. From where we are now, which on Monday was a 250, I believe, 
Right now, we're up seven basis points at 1.260, up 10 basis points this morning. If there's three vectors, one is higher yields, one is stability from this new jump condition, and one is we migrate back to a lower yield environment, can you dovetail with Peter Hooper's optimism, or do you take a more nuanced, a different tack than Dr. Hooper? No, I, th- I would run with uh, the optimistic view to some extent. So I think that there are a few different elements. Uh, one, in the short term, I think you're really seeing the market uh, taking a view that animal spirits, the more constructive views that you're seeing in terms of sentiment and confidence will prevail as far as the uh, short-term economic outlook is concerned. And then they're kind of projecting forward from that and saying, okay, and then we're going to get a stimulus. And that probably hits towards the end of 2017 and uh, and into 2018. And that stimulus really becomes okay. you know, part of the, the growth story. So it, we, that's the growth story. We normalize. Everybody mints money off Alan Ruskin's picks. Then what does Chair Yellen do, as was one of the questions yesterday in the press conference, with the balance sheet? She, more than anyone, will have the luxury of reducing the balance sheet. Do you guys, when you all get together, do you believe she will affect a balance sheet reduction? I think it's going to be extremely difficult, uh, Tom, you. in this environment where bond yields are backing up. The last thing this market needs really is, uh, you know, a backup uh, uh, in yields that uh, relates to a balance sheet adjustment. So I think she put it perfectly in a sense that she said that, look, uh, they want to normalize rates just to, and, and let that be the lead element in terms of policy tightening rather than the balance sheet, because at some point in time, they might actually have to cut rates. And it's a whole lot better cutting interest rates uh, if you have a downturn than somehow expanding or re-expanding the balance sheet. I want to ask you just close here by asking about a little more about, about China and what you expect there uh, in terms of uh, the, the currency in the new year. Uh, and and maybe if if you think the IMF is having any regrets here about including it in that in that special basket, uh, in light of what we've seen with the currency here in these last few months. Yeah, I think you know we've had a forecast for a while now of uh, dollar China reaching seven point four at the uh, end of two thousand and seventeen. That still seems reasonable. Uh, it's based on the idea that uh, the dollar will be stronger. It's based on the idea that the Chinese currency remains very sensitive to U.S. interest rates. That's something that's uh, sometimes underestimated. And it works with the idea that uh, uh, China still has the resources, effectively, to uh, marshal a fairly <laughs> subdued depreciation rather than an acceleration. Okay. Resources. I asked this question <laughs> earlier today. What is the quality of reserves when the media spouts reserve statistics? Are those accurate numbers or is a general statement there is is the reserve bucket smaller country to country? Yeah, I think uh, in terms of China, the market certainly has speculated that the China's Ford book is fairly large so that net reserves are actually maybe smaller than the headline number. Um, you know, that, as I said, is, you know, just a, a speculation that's out there in the marketplace. It, it's it's a, a very common view, mind you. Um, so let's see. Um, you know, mm. uh, I think there's a view that uh, if China's reserves go down by anything approaching, right. say, $100 billion a month, Again, then we've got some problems here that it just shows that there's a very significant uh, capital outflow acceleration. Very valuable. Alan Ruskin, thank you so much with Deutsche Bank. A great update.
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.